0: Hi everyone, it's Lou. I'm just, of course, reminding everyone that we have a petition. Please don't forget to sign it and share it as much as you possibly can. Unbelievably, As I'm speaking to you right now, there is over 10,700 signatures, but we can get more. We know there's way, way more people who want collaborative, proactive solutions to come to Australia and be embedded in Australian schools to save kids' lives, to change kids' lives, to make things better for our kids. All the information about the petition is in the show notes. Please make sure you keep sharing it and you keep signing it. Go for it, guys. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. It's Lou here and today I am interviewing the neurodivergent doctor, also known as Sarah Bernard. So Dr. Sarah Bernard is somebody that I've met through social media and through um, our group Square Peg Round Hole on Facebook. We've not met face-to-face, but she's somebody that I immediately connected to. I could tell by the way she was writing and the way she was articulating herself that she is somebody who absolutely understands as a parent, as a neurodivergent person herself and actually she's a doctor, a medical doctor. So we're going to hear more about all of those intersections um, from her in this interview. Today we're going to hear all about Sarah, her life growing up. She actually writes amazing blogs which I have shared before but she's going to tell us about the reasoning behind those those blogs and why she decided to write them. One of the things that Sarah is really passionate about is things like talking about autistic play, ableist school reports and letters from the school which I know we all will relate to. And then, of course, the good old topic of behaviourism. So, we delve into that as well, and she has lots of fantastic ideas about that. We touch on her job as a geriatrician, and we even got to talking about the disability and the aged care royal commissions. So, we covered a lot of ground. We talk about um, Western Australia advocacy and With that, I want to just let everybody know that Sarah is part of a group that has been started for WA members of Square Peg Round Hole. The parent who is administering the group is um, Simone Wheatley and she and Sarah and a number of other really fabulous um, people in WA are just forming a small group that's going to get together and talk about how... Uh, They can hold the WA government and education minister to account for delivering um, an improved education offering for students with disabilities in Western Australia. So that's really exciting and there's more information about that on the Facebook group. And feel free, if you are in WA listening to this podcast today, to get in touch either with me or in the group, in the Facebook group, and find out more about that group. Because they're just starting up and there's a lot of really good people who are there to support them. And I hope that they can make a difference for all the WA students. And I think now, with that, it's time for us to actually chat to Dr. Sarah Bernard. Welcome to the podcast, to the Neurodivergent Doctor, also known as Sarah Bernard.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. Sarah, let's just start. You happy with that? (laughs) Okay. So the first one is all about animals. So what is your favourite animal, Sarah? And why is that your favourite?
1: Oh, I love that question. Um, So so it's got to be the gecko. I've had a real love for geckos ever since I was a kid. Um, We used to find them in our house and garden. And my parents taught me and my siblings to really respect them and, you know, make sure we didn't hurt them. And they, they taught us it was lucky to have them in our house because they help us by eating flies and mozzies. Um, And I just love them also because they're tiny and beautifully detailed to look at. It's so cute. And I just love the pattern of how they move their bodies and climb. And I also just think it's amazing how they can lose their tails on purpose to trick predators. I just think that is very, very cool. Mm -hmm.
0: I didn't know they did that. I thought they might camouflage themselves. but
1: Yeah, they can camouflage as well, like change their colour. But, um, yeah, they can drop their tails or at least some of them can for if, if a bird's awesome. attacking them or something yeah it's so cool and then it can grow back again
0: gosh I've had some interesting animals that people have said but that oh, one's
1: <laughs> pretty quirky that's awesome
0: <laughs> thanks <laughs> I remember seeing them when I lived in Thailand many 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 years ago but do you have them in Perth
1: yes yes we do um, they're pretty tiny or oh, the ones the ones in Perth are like very tiny Um, and sort of sandy colored and they camouflage beautifully with trees and and the walls of houses and things so yeah I just love when I can come across them
0: awesome oh that's really good and the next question is serious um it's about you telling us about one thing that you could change in the world what would that be Sarah and why would you choose to change that one thing
1: Well, that is a tough question because hasn't there just been so much happening in the world lately that I think we'd all love to change? Um, So, you know, even beginning to pick one is a challenge, but maybe one thing I'd really like to change is the way the world just accepts not being excellent for autistic and neurodivergent people and actually for all disabled people You know, wherever we go, whether it's school or starting a new job or going to a doctor's appointment, we're just not surprised, I think, if our needs haven't been thought about. And that's everything, you know, from not having physical access to a lot of businesses and facilities for wheelchair users to things like sensory overload for neurodivergent Mm. people from too much noise or, you know, communication barriers from not being given enough time to process verbal instructions. Um, And, Mm. you know, it's wild because that stuff is so easy and inexpensive to fix but it makes real barriers to autistic, neurodivergent and disabled people. So I want that mm. to end because it's not hard, I think, to include us and consider us from the start. Um, and I'd like us to be able to expect an excellent experience, you know, everywhere we go. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think maybe this is also a bit of a sneaky one thing to ask for because what's key to it is that, Um, To make it a reality, we'd also have to reduce things like racism and sexism and all the other disadvantages that exist because they're all so interlinked and you can't work on one effectively unless you work on them all. And that's absolutely what I want too. So maybe I've hidden a lot of extras in my one thing. Sorry. I hope that's not. No,
0: don't (laughs) apologise. That's wonderful and Mm. makes me really think about the fact that they – all have very common themes, don't they, of Mm -hmm. othering and distancing and division.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, let's go to the next question. This is about you telling us about you (laughs) and your family and your life growing up and how you found yourself doing what you are doing today and how that connects or aligns with the concept of the square peg trying to fit into the round hole.
1: Yeah absolutely. Um, so so my life growing up I actually have really vivid memories um, which is part of my autistic neurology and my memories go back to when I was very young like I can remember things from when I was under two years old and I'm really lucky, actually, because I had a pretty great early childhood um, and home life. And I know not everyone has that, but I felt really, I felt really understood and cherished by my parents and my mum, especially who encouraged mine and my siblings' interests and passions. Um, and for me, those were things like, even from a young age, things like science and nature and social justice and creative writing. So that was my early childhood and home life. So, so I think relating to your concept, I was really like a square peg but in a square hole. But yeah, my right. yeah, yeah. So I was in that that beautiful fit. Um, but my schooling and then the start to my work life was a bit of a different story. Um, so I can definitely relate to feeling like a square peg suddenly faced with a round hole. And then realizing that everyone else around me was just fitting that round hole and actually their success hinged on that. So I told myself, oh, well, I better be round like everyone else and fit into that round hole. And, you know, I better pretend that that actually fits perfectly, even though it didn't, um, which makes sense now that I know I was an unidentified neurodivergent person at school. Um, and so, you know, school school was a mix. Um, the learning and academics I loved. I have a strong memory and I loved learning new things and getting good marks. Um, but there was also this social world at school and I could never put my finger on why, but I never really felt safe to be myself. And I wasn't bullied, but the social rules of the playground and friendships, they just seemed so confusing to me and I always felt like I was scrambling to keep up or scrambling to understand how the other kids knew, you know. They just knew what was cool versus what would get you teased. Um, So I spent, you know, most of my time just trying hard not to stand out um, and do as the other kids were doing. And it was mostly successful, you know. Like I think most of my teachers and friends described me as quiet and friendly. I was no trouble, um, but that was like a mask covering up. Yeah, this, I was just, I was yeah. Just ask, is yeah. that what
0: how you would describe masking? Yeah, okay. Absolutely,
1: yeah. That's exactly that concept. Um, so it was this mask that was covering up this backbreaking effort and quite a lot of anxiety too? I now realise. Um, so yeah so that was very hard Um, but the saving grace for me I think was that I had one or two close friends um, and we gravitated towards each other I think because we shared similar interests and when those friendships continued into adulthood it turned out those friends were also unidentified neurodivergent people so so we found each other um, and I think we often have a knack for that right Um, yeah yeah Yeah, I see
0: that a lot Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. oh well that's good so although you've been through a lot of the um questioning and the difficulties that we hear expressed today still by young people you managed to get yourself through that and come through the other end when did you discover that you were also neurodivergent
1: yeah, so, so I think that um, relates to my life um, in my early career stage and starting, you know, life and starting a family. Um, so, so being quite sciencey, I decided I wanted to study medicine and off I went to medical school. And I really Mm. did love learning and becoming a doctor, but, you know, I still had that struggle of the social world and office politics was really hard for me as well as planning and organisation. It just seemed to take me so much more time and effort, which I now know was due to executive dysfunction. But at the time I thought I just maybe wasn't doing it right or needed to try harder. And, Mm. you know, I got married and my husband and I had our first child and it was when I was pregnant um, with our second child and starting my second lot of maternity leave that my first child was identified as autistic. Okay. Yeah, and that was, you know, huge because even though I was a doctor, medical school had taught me almost nothing about autism or disability, which is so sad. Um, yeah, And all I had was a lot of stereotypes and I cringe now to think how inaccurate my ideas were. Um, And so that's what made me initially very frightened for how my child was going to navigate life and have a good life as an autistic person. Um, And so I was really lucky that I quickly discovered the autistic community online. These, you know, brilliant autistic adults that were writing blogs and, you know, I dove deep into studying and learning from them. And thank goodness they were there ready to show me that, you know, being autistic is beautiful um, and a valid way of being. And, And so it wasn't long after that that my second child was identified as autistic and then, Seeing their autistic ways, I was finally able to recognise myself. Wow! Okay. Yeah, yeah. and and I realised that you know, my whole life it, I wasn't wrong for not fitting into that round hole. I guess. No. Yeah, it's, it's just that the round nice. hole was it was designed with neurotypical pegs in mind, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right, and it it strikes me how often I hear this similar story to what you describe. Yeah, I'm thinking of other people I've interviewed, but also just friends and people I know who mm-hmm. discover their own. I mean, even myself, like I, I've not been officially diagnosed with anything as such, but um, you, you really do reflect, don't you? You look in, you're looking in the mirror more and seeing yourself in a different light once your child has been identified
1: yes yes absolutely yeah it was really transformative i think right Um, yes and and i was lucky because i could then go on and as a doctor i knew how to navigate the health system to get myself an official diagnosis which was very validating and wonderful but there are so many people who as adults self identify that they think they might be autistic or might be adhd but the the recognition of how that looks in adults, there's not many doctors who actually know that, who don't who, you know, have the right expertise to diagnose that. And the assessments are so expensive as well. That's a whole other barrier. So I think that's why self-identification of neurodivergence is so valid um, and those people are very much part of the autistic and neurodivergent community as well.
0: Oh, I think that's so lovely to hear you articulate it that way. Um, I was thinking about one of my previous guests, I think it was um, Dr. Melanie Hayworth was saying, Mm -hmm. was talking about the privilege of being uh, identified or diagnosed Mm -hmm. as neurodivergent and that Mm -hmm. that's a privilege that, as you just said, a lot of people don't have. And I've noticed a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the groups um, now who are sort of support groups or advocacy groups welcoming self-identified people who yes
1: yes i think that the the neurodivergent community yeah is generally very welcoming um but just to to emphasize the importance of that and and for people who aren't neurodivergent to understand why that's necessary it's because of the barriers that exist
0: Um, yeah yeah and and are there particular influences you mentioned before some sort of mentors or um, autistic adults who you've you got a lot of insight from and felt a lot of camaraderie or you know you described your feeling of that you identified with those people are they people that you think you could share
1: yeah absolutely um and I think that's a you know a great question um and I can think of two um really influential ones so um get ready to be excited if you look them up (laughs) and see see what they've got to say um so Dr Mary Doherty is got to be one of my idols. Yeah, um, and and I'm lucky enough to have her as a mentor too. So she's an autistic anaesthetist living in Ireland and she founded the group Autistic Doctors International which I'm a member of. Yes, yes. Um, So there's well over 400 members now. um, And I'd say Mary was really the one who gave me the roadmap for how to be openly autistic in my professional life as a doctor. And that's been so key to my happiness um, and authenticity. Oh,
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, I will be sharing whatever I can find on Dr. Mary Doherty because there could be other people out there that would need to 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 follow her
1: absolutely someone else um yes well and I think the the wonderful thing is Autistic Doctors International has a website so you can go check that out autisticdoctorsinternational.com and um, they're also doing some really exciting stuff in autism research, so creating research by and for autistic people. And you can find those research outputs on the website. So, yeah, mm. get ready to, to be thrilled. Um, and awesome. my second one, yeah, um, is Tim Chan, who...
0: Oh, I know Tim. Well, I don't know him.
1: I don't, I don't know, I have, I know
0: I who he is. Met,
1: yes, I've not met Tim. But I discovered his work and it has opened my eyes so much. So he has—he is an Australian non-speaking autistic advocate mm. um, and he authored the Reframing Autism position statement on autistic communication and he's written a fabulous blog. Um, he's written a book actually as well. Um, and um, so if you look for his work on timchan.com, and reframingautism.org.au yes well worth a look I'll,
0: I'll share all of that don't you worry that's great Beautiful. I wonder if he would ever come on my podcast too oh
1: that would be amazing yeah, it would be that amazing. would be oh yes we should make that my one thing so instead of having me have Tim Chan oh. <laughs> my one thing that I want to change
0: <laughs> I'm out to get just about everybody yeah <laughs> okay that I really admire so that's wonderful okay thank you brilliant so now let's move on to talk a little bit more about your blogs you've written blogs about issues that listeners relate to I'm sure and I'm ke- I'm very keen to hear you express your thoughts on issues such as autistic play ableist school reports and navigating behaviorism as a parent and professional mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um we've had lots of discussion and that it's been so welcome thank you so much I often tag you don't I because I <laughs> know I love. that you've written about it in your blogs and that you just have such amazing insights Sarah so mm-hmm. um we'll talk about these blogs and I'm sure there'll be more to come in the future and obviously I will share the blog um, website and I have put a couple of them and we'll be putting more on the Square peg, round hole. Oh, fantastic! um, Thank you so much as well. So let's start by talking about autistic play. What have you observed, Sarah, about autistic play, and what do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so thank you. This is something that I love talking about. Um, So when my kids went through their autism diagnostic assessments. Um, it was a play-based assessment. It's called the ados, so a lot of people mm-hmm. who have neurodivergent kids would be familiar with that process. And um, what it involves is the assessors look at how your kids play to see if that is tracking along like a typically developing kid or not. And so I was watching watching my kids in these assessments and it was so cute. I could see you know I could see that their play was adorable but not typical. And the feedback at the end of the assessment was all about what their play was lacking. So it was very deficit-based, very negative feedback. And initially that made me feel really sad and guilty, like maybe I'd failed for letting my kids play the wrong way and why hadn't I taught them to play properly, you know. And that's not the fault of the assessors, I should say. That's um, it's how they have to work because of how the diagnostic criteria for autism are designed, but it totally fails to appreciate how beautiful autistic play is. And I learned about that from the autistic community, from people like Amethyst Shaber, who was blogging in those days. Um, So um, Amethyst has the Neuro Wonderful blog, which a lot of people would be familiar with. Um, And so things like lining up toys and objects that a lot of health professionals consider pathological, those are actually totally valid types of play. And I get such a thrill out of discovering those beautiful arrangements around my house where my kids have been playing. You know, it's like coming across beautiful art installations unexpectedly and I love taking photos of them and showing other people. Um, And another one is parallel play. So parallel play is where kids play alongside each other. So they're doing activities in parallel beside each other but not interacting just being in the same space and in terms of child development it's considered a stepping stone to playing collaboratively so it's almost viewed as something that you grow out of but honestly I have never grown out of parallel play Um, the idea of doing my own thing in my own way but cozily next to my loved ones that is just Lists and my kids and I do this very often and very happily and we never feel like we're missing out on a better type of play so so parallel play is something that autistic people do and enjoy well into adulthood um do you relate to that with your neurodivergent kids
0: oh I'm sitting here nodding but absolutely yes of course and I parallel play absolutely jolts a trigger in me Mm -hmm. I remember that being something that I was ticking off a list oh good he's doing parallel play but shouldn't he now be starting to do a different type of interaction shouldn't he be looking Mm -hmm. at the other child and looking and and interacting with them yeah Mm -hmm. I remember that being Oh, such a focus. We're all obsessed when about these things when our kids are young. Well, I was, yeah, no, I, I was just the thought same. that was so important, mm-hmm. yeah. And I now just, yeah, have a really different thought about that. And you saying you do that now as an adult, well, I yes. was just doing it before. I was out in the <laughs> living room with my husband, he was doing something, and I was doing something else, and we talked to each other every now and then, but. Yeah. So what? Yeah. It doesn't mean a thing, does it? Yeah.
1: No, that's right. You're you're connecting, you're enjoying that space and you know, and sharing from time to time what you're doing, but but doing your own thing as well.
0: Mm. Well I know you wrote a wonderful blog on that so we'll, we'll direct people to that as well but mm-hmm. um, can definitely relate to that. Oh, what goodness. about a- ableist school reports and mm. letters from school? Um, I know we had something recently on our in our group about this but mm-hmm. I know this is again something you've really dealt so well with and followed through on it as well. So um can you yes. tell us your thoughts on these communications that come from school and how you've dealt with it before? Because I think parents find find it really hard to advocate for these... Um, for their kids in these situations they don't Mm -hmm. want to be combative and Mm -hmm. argumentative um, Mm -hmm. or condescending so yeah Mm -hmm. tell us what you think about this.
1: Yeah absolutely very happy to share and I I do want to acknowledge that very real and extra workload that parents of disabled kids have with that need for advocacy it's just like a constant thing. Um, so, So with school reports in my view There's no reason we shouldn't expect school reports to affirm and recognise the effort that our neurodivergent kids put in just to exist, you know. Yeah. But so often that's not the case. Um, And last year my older kids' school report came home with this comment, this overall comment that, you know, they put at the end of the report as like a summary of what your kid is like at school. And overall they thought my kid was too reliant on the education assistant in the classroom and they didn't want my kid to rely so much on help they wanted my kid to instead persevere when challenged that was that what they said um, and i read that you know persevere when challenged and and on the face of it maybe it sounds like a good thing like yes we all want to persevere with challenges and and learn and, and you know be encouraged to try things but i just thought you have no idea. Every second of every day is challenge and perseverance for my kid. Um, And when they ask for assistance, it's not laziness or not embracing a challenge. It's because the task is inaccessible. It's self-advocacy. So I challenged the comment. And the way I did it was by saying, hey, if my kid's disability was physical, instead of neurocognitive, so let's say if my kid was a wheelchair user, you wouldn't be saying, oh, your kid is overall too reliant on their wheelchair and ramps around the school. And we'd like them to persevere when challenged with walking up the stairs, right? You would be able to see straight away the ableism in that comment. And so I asked the school to take my kids' access needs just as seriously as the access needs of a person with a physical disability. And that helped them understand um, where the problem was and after a lot of persistence and, and advocating up the chain. Um, and I think one of the great things about autistic people is we tend to be very persistent and not let things go when we know what the right thing is. Um, so I kept advocating and eventually was successful in getting that comment removed from my child's report. Um, so good. I remember mm. you
0: sharing it once that had happened. It took you a little while, didn't it? It took You get to... Yeah, like you say, persistence, it pays off. It's definitely and an experience.
1: You...
0: Yes, yeah. I know. It's so hard. And this is, I guess, I feel like I'm always asking this, but working as a team, it's very, very hard. How did you find that?
1: Um, oh, Terribly, terribly difficult to navigate. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I don't get the balance right sometimes. Um, but I guess, you know, I really, I do try very hard to give positive feedback wherever it's possible um and you know all teachers have got strengths um with the way that they teach so you can find those and and really you know encourage and and validate validate how hard being a teacher is as well you know like I have so much respect for how difficult and underappreciated their work is so I make sure that they know that um but but yeah you do have to be firm don't you you have to take a stand when yeah, you absolutely do when your kids yeah. needs are being ignored yeah mm-hmm. yep
0: yep well yes well I guess we'll just continue on and everyone's got a different style and um mm-hmm. different way of handling it but that you you're very good in writing as well aren't you <laughs> yes <laughs> was, yes blogs, I'm, I'm so. much
1: better in writing than I am in um in talking so so yeah <laughs> that's my special talent
0: I guess reaching out to people like people have been doing on in our group uh, which is in writing and it gets you um some good advice from people like yourself so thank you very much for helping people in the group other parents it's very very kind of you
1: I love doing Um, it
0: yeah I know you do and that's (laughs) why I just you were such a brilliant find so what about let's talk about behaviorism oh my favorite Mm, topic mm. tell us about your thoughts on reward charts detentions and suspensions how do you navigate the problem of behaviorism
1: Mm, great question um so you're right it's behaviorism that underlies all those things and the problem i think is behaviorism is just too simplistic Um, too simplistic for real humans the central concept is this thing called operant conditioning theory which is this quite old-fashioned idea in psychiatry that says human behavior is intentional and it depends on the person's interaction with their environment so behaviorism uh which underlies I should say a lot of the the things like positive behaviour support which are the behaviour strategies used in a lot of schools. It says that if you want to change behaviour, student behaviour, all you need to do is manipulate things like rewards and punishments and while it's true that we do all learn from the consequences of our behaviour, we can all relate to that idea, humans are just more complex than rewards and punishments and you can't ethically just punish people if their behavior is a result of distress or seeking to get a need met and likewise you shouldn't be rewarding people to get them to do things that are actually painful for them that's not ethical so so to give a child a reward chart say where they get a tick for sitting quietly in class or they get a cross or a negative consequence for getting out of their seat without permission it considers nothing about the meaning of the behaviour. What is underlying that? Like what if they're getting up because they need to go to the toilet or sitting is painful because they have different sensory needs or they're trying to get help? You don't punish those things. You communicate and you problem solve with the child. And I think suspensions and detentions, they're just another type of behaviour punishment, right? And they, mm. they send the message to kids and the whole community it's okay for us to exclude you rather than meet your needs and that's, that's just not okay. Whereas I think, you know, the secret of great teachers is like the opposite of behaviourism and what great teachers show us time and again is their greatness and their results come from fostering relationships and making their students feel secure by responding to their individual needs, you know. Mm. Every time we've had a brilliant teacher that's been the secret not reward charts
0: and the brilliant teacher do you think in, that they have an understanding of this concept of behaviourism versus sort of respectful um, treatment for their you know to the for the person's new different neurology do you yeah think, how, i think how deep do you think their understanding is
1: I wonder, I wonder if it's just innate or the way that mm. people have learnt to interact um, in their own families or maybe they have actually got um, some experience and understanding of neurodivergence mm. and disability and, and the way that the social model of disability underpins that, you know, making sure needs are met. Um, so, mm. yeah, it's a great question.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah I guess we it's every everyone's an individual and every situation's different but if you think of our own experience I mean I know that's part of our my family's story is that was my husband actually who made that discovery um or had that kind of moment of well this isn't working so we need to try something that sort of goes against the way we were all brought up and our our thinking about what motivates a child to behave a certain way. we just got to throw that out the window and try this. So I guess everyone's on a different um, path and a different part of their own moment for realising what's going on.
1: Yeah. It's interesting.
0: Have you had much uh, problem at school other than, you know, getting a good teacher or not a good teacher, but have you had to explain the concept of behaviourism to your schools?
1: I mean, I think maybe the way I've approached it so far is I've used concrete examples like that, like the school report that, you know, are there in front of us and, and are relevant to what's happening at the time and then talk about the access needs that underpin the problem that's happening at the time. Um, but I'd love to see, I'd love to see more understanding and teaching in education in general about different options to behaviourism and, and the fact that you know all the evidence now is pointing to the fact that behaviorism is actually not even effective. You know that the outcomes the outcomes are showing that there's no good evidence to support it. Um, and interestingly there was a pretty high profile report that came out in the uk recently that recommended downscaling its use positive behavior support so that was quite gratifying to see oh as well. i need
0: to see that i'm going to i'm going to need to see that because i'm gathering so much trying to gather as much evidence as possible
1: <laughs> no worries i will send it your way
0: Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. Well, this is our overarching, one of our guiding principles, if you like, of of where we're trying to go as parent advocates. So we Mm -hmm. will keep on that journey. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk to you a bit more about the intersection or interaction between your neurodivergence or neurodivergence in general Mm -hmm. and your profession I believe you're a geriatrician is
1: that right yes yes that's right that's exactly right I'm a geriatrician which is a specialist doctor for older people so similar to how a pediatrician is a specialist for younger people I'm at the other end of life
0: before I ask you this question why I'm wondering Mm. why you
1: chose that yeah it's interesting um so actually uh, when you start as an intern In Australia, which is your first year as a doctor, you rotate through different jobs. So you spend, you know, 10 weeks in one specialty and then you move to the next. And the first Mm -hmm. specialty that I rotated through was geriatric medicine. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't think that it was going to be my career. But interestingly, one of the geriatricians um, who was supervising me said to me, you're going to be a geriatrician. And I was like... Nah, nah, no. <laughs> Why right. did they say that to you? I don't know. They must have seen something in me. And so, you know, I kept going through my internship and my um, other early years as a doctor and, and I tried doing geriatric medicine again in more senior roles and each time I just loved it a little bit more and it's a combination of um, in geriatric medicine we are very team-based so we don't work in just as a silo as a doctor we work collaboratively with physiotherapists and occupational therapists and speech therapists I love that um, because it means that in our specialty There's not such a hierarchy, if you like, like it's not the doctor speaking down to everyone else. It's very flattened where it's team decision-making for everything. Um, And I feel reassured by that because I know that, you know, the decision's not all on me for one thing. It's gonna be a team decision and that's always gonna be better than one person making all the calls. Um and and you know, it's just it's nice to get those different perspectives from the different professionals working in the specialty. So I really love that aspect of geriatric mm. medicine and I think it makes it stand out from other specialties.
0: It feels very respectful that you all work together like yes. that. That's lovely. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, I was just, I've always wondered that about you. Uh-huh. Um, and so I guess my question is about what, what have you learnt about the intersection of neurodivergence and your work as a geriatrician in your professional life? Do you find that mm. it impacts one way or the other?
1: Yeah, well, I think neurodivergence impacts everything about my life, yes. <laughs> um, and and being a doctor is no different. Um, but the way the way that neurodivergence is relevant, I mean, first off, it's my autistic and ADHD strengths that actually help me to be a good doctor. Um, so things like attention to detail, strong memory, strong empathy, passion recognition, creative thinking. That's a really common theme among all the neurodivergent doctors I know. And medicine actually selects for those strengths, those neurodivergent strengths. So I think it can be a great career choice for neurodivergent people. I mean, there's still lots of barriers and work um, needs to be done to bring those down. But um, I think it really makes sense that there's more recognition that more doctors are autistic and neurodivergent. And then, um, my passion at work in geriatric medicine is actually healthcare for patients who have neurodegenerative disorders, which is things like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's dementia. And that's really relevant to neurodiversity because the original concept of neurodiversity and neurodivergence were meant to be as inclusive as possible. So, people with dementia are definitely included in neurodiversity. And we know from the work of dementia self-advocates that stigma and stereotypes and access are massive problems for them. So, So under that neurodiversity framework, I'm really passionate about the idea of the social model of disability and how those principles can be used to get the needs met for these people living with dementia, get them fully included in their communities and break down the stigma that they experience
0: wow you know what I started thinking then I started thinking about the social role valorization course that I did recently that so many people were so interested in in the group um, where I was learning about valuing Mm -hmm. humans Mm. so um, those with the highest sort of perceived value in society are um, sort of young white males Mm -hmm. for example right whereas different marginalized groups such as people with disabilities refugees Mm -hmm. the elderly Mm -hmm. and -hmm. different groups like that are less valued in our society they are devalued yes sadly yes of course sadly yes but that you know a person an elderly person with dementia in a nursing home Mm -hmm. is of a they are devalued in our society just as an autistic child in a special school is also Mm -hmm. devalued for their differences. Anyway, I learned so much. It was a really, really good course, but everything you were Mm -hmm. talking about, um, then I just kept thinking about it. It keeps coming back to me.
1: Yeah. Well, and of course we had the Aged Care Royal Commission, which was just before the Disability Royal Commission. And we're seeing so many parallels in the information and evidence that's coming out of that. So I think, you know, the great thing about the Aged Care Royal Commission is that it's been a driver of change in the sector and so I'm looking forward to the same for disability.
0: Oh, I hope so. I really hope so. Oh, yeah. you know my job is is helping people to put their submissions to the Disability Royal Commission. That's my paid job. But I have already in the short time I've been doing that learnt so much and I really hope you're right about that because um What I'm hearing that's being reported to the Royal Commission is, I'm sure it was the same for the aged care one and the others as well, but it was, yeah, it's very upsetting and something has to change because of that. I knew there would be a connection. (laughs) You were right. Um, (laughs) So now let's talk about, we're getting towards the end now, but we can keep going. So let's talk about Western Australia. You live in Perth.
1: Do you live in Perth? Yes, I do. Yes, I live in Perth, yeah.
0: What is needed in Western Australia that would make the education system a more neuroaffirming environment for our square peg children? Mm. Do you have ideas of things that WA listeners could do to help the education department in WA become more inclusive?
1: Mm, what a great question. Ah, uh, Yes, So, so I think something WA people can do, I think we should simply ask for transparency and accountability from our government, including our Minister for Education. And so I'd encourage people, it's pretty easy to do, you can email the WA Minister for Education or the WA Premier or hop on their social media accounts and make comments because what I'm seeing is a lot of talk and promise of spending to support disabled kids and kids with mental health issues in our school But what I don't see is the government putting their money where their mouth is and actually publishing school suspension data. And, yeah, and I think that's key. You know, we know for a fact from national data on school suspensions and what's coming out with the findings from the Disability Royal Commission is disabled kids are way overrepresented in school suspensions. And that's hard evidence that their access needs are not being met and they're experiencing discrimination. So so WA doesn't publish their school suspension data regularly like other states do, and that should change because if the government wants to spend our taxes to improve outcomes for school kids, they need to show us the numbers, right? So we should see that high percentage of disabled students who are suspended, we should see that start to come down if their spending is effective, if they're actually putting the money where it needs to go. So I'd wow. say to, yep. to WA people and to the gov- WA government, you know, if you, want, if you want more success for your neurodivergent disabled kids in schools, like if you want more autistic doctors and less autistic dropouts, publish your data and make sure you're spending smart, not just spending big, and i'm confident i'm confident they'll listen up if we're persistent and we can hold them hold them accountable to to their promises and to legislation like the disability discrimination act and the disability standards for education which apply to all schools public and private so so ask for it speak up and ask for it
0: yes i agree well you know i'm i'm always one for saying please speak up and i speak up so much that i get blocked from places but um (laughs) that's okay um what what we'll do is we'll put um some some links um to the wa education minister and premier and so that makes it easier for people to do that beautiful the other thing i would add to that is that recently there was a public hearing at the disability royal commission speaking of that again Mm -hmm. where the western australian education department representative answered questions, gave evidence at this hearing of the Royal Commission, mm-hmm. and it was appalling. It oh. was appalling. It was re- It was um, revealed that there's still rooms where disabled children are locked away, oh. seclusion rooms in WA. Things like that come forward, and this is oh, the sort of thing, that- I think, parents listening, if you're in WA and you know for a fact that that was just recently... Um, mentioned you know that the suspension data is not being released and there's no link to the spending that's going on Um, you need to speak up you need to write to the education minister and hold her accountable for all of these things that you know you are a taxpayer you are a voter and you need to have your say and ask her to justify why these things are still going on um so We will facilitate that, won't we, Sarah?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to my first wish. We should expect excellence. We shouldn't expect anything less. And, you know, a seclusion room is just so far down the opposite end of what we should be expecting for our precious children in schools. You know, absolutely, we need to speak up about that. So, you know, get on it. (laughs) Yes. Okay, we're on it. We're (laughs) on it.
0: You know, things can happen and we can, you know, a lot of people are very interested to get... Collaborative, proactive solutions in the schools in mm-hmm. WA as mm-hmm. well, so we can um, ask for that when we communicate with the minister as well.
1: So. Absolutely, any alternative to these old-fashioned behaviourist principles that we know don't work, we've got to we've got to get it out there. So, yeah, that would be a fantastic option to try something that's evidence-based and is different and and new um and not based on those old principles so yeah yes Mm
0: -hmm. yes let's do it Mm -hmm. now finally before we finish up sarah um You've been such a wonderful, knowledgeable ally and friend to us all and we're so glad that you're here um, with us. Can you tell me, I mean, you've given me lots of information already as well, but mm-hmm. what else guides you? Do you have any particular mentors, books or influences that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to mention?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess, yes, yeah, so I've mentioned the beautiful Dr. Mary Doherty and Tim Chan um, books, I think a wonderful sort of introduction to the idea of neurodiversity is um, the book Neurotribes by uh, Steve Silverman, so I definitely recommend that. And um, for those who want to get sort of deeper into the concepts of neurodiversity and how it fits with the disability rights movement, um, what I'm reading at the moment is Neuroqueer Heresies by Nick Walker, which is fantastic and I'm learning so much. So um, definitely check those books out if you, if you want to learn more and um, hop on to, to social media and find autistic people to follow. There's so many now. Yeah. Um, look for the work of autistic researchers in journals for education and, and in medicine and psychiatry um, because that's where all the great change is happening.
0: Oh, how exciting. Mm. All right. Well, I will definitely list those two books. So anything else you want to say?
1: Or, uh, no, I think that's, gosh, you covered a lot, haven't we? We have. We usually do. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful.
0: <laughs> well, then if you feel you've said everything, I just want to thank you very much for being on the podcast and for all your contributions to our community and hopefully one day, We will meet face-to-face.
1: Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Lou. It's been a pleasure.
0: You're welcome. I'll sign us off now. Thank Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushel Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushel. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushel. And remember, just be nice to one another.